In today's episode, I speak with Carla Diana about the design of smart products in robots. Hello, and welcome to Technology in Space, where we talk about the science, technology, history, and business of space exploration and commercialization. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Carla Diana, author of My Robot Gets Me, How Social Design Can Make New Products More Human, published March 30th, 2021 by Harvard Business Review Press. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. So first, um, how did you get into uh, writing a book, studying this subject and writing a book on it? Yeah, so it's a bit of a long winding path mm -hmm. um, that starts with engineering and winds up with design. But I um, studied mechanical engineering because I knew that I wanted to um, design and develop things and followed that up with a graduate degree in product design. Mm -hmm. but had been a teenager with a Commodore 64 and uh, all kinds of other sort of um, coding fascinations. So at some point in graduate school, the coding and the uh, physical came together like a light bulb for me. And I realized that I wanted to focus my career around developing physical things that had a digital component. Okay. And, so I was, I worked for a number of product design firms, including one called Smart Design, and then had always had one foot in industry and one in academia because I was excited about working in industry and having things that could actually touch people's lives. Mm -hmm. But then I was uh, also always fascinated with whatever was on the bleeding edge. Mm -hmm. And so... I have always tried to find that balance and have pretty much gotten to that, that place mm -hmm. um, where I consult for a client that's a robotics company. And I also run a graduate program at Cranbrook Academy of Art. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question succinctly, I was a visiting faculty member at Georgia Tech about 15 or so years ago, 10 more than 10 years ago, let's say. Okay. And mm -hmm. I was, uh, had seen, was forwarded an ad for a researcher who was working in a lab that she developed that was focused on social robotics. Mm -hmm. And she was looking to collaborate with a uh, designer. And when I saw that, I felt like, that's kind of the holy grail <laughs> of this place that the physical and the digital come together. Mm -hmm. And I'd never heard of a field called social robotics. Um, I didn't know a lot about her research, but I, I knew that this idea of a social robot would be something that was completely fascinating to me as a designer. So mm -hmm. I applied and interviewed with her and she took me on and made me a big part of the team, core team of three of us, herself, the mechanical engineer, Jonathan Holmes, and her name is uh, Dr. Andrea Tamaz, mm -hmm. who now runs Diligent Robotics, which is the company that I consult for mm -hmm. and has an affiliation with the University of Texas in Austin. So you touched on um, already, and what you said you touched on a question I wanted to ask, which is do you focus, how do you balance your focus between devices for the mass market versus um, 
robots or instruments to be used in, in an advanced technology setting, you know, in a cutting edge technology setting, say like space. <laughs> you know? Right. I did once have a conversation with NASA about a project and it didn't come to pass, but it was very, very exciting to think about social robotics in space and how that could be helpful. But I digress around the balance, you know, it's more about, I have a very um, defined area of passion that is this, these physical objects that have digital components and, essentially have high interactivity with a person. Hmm. If there's a, you know, I do, I work with robotics companies, but if there's a client that approaches me, that's let's say working on a factory robot that really doesn't have any interaction with a person, it's really not my area of expertise. Hmm. So okay. the, the, what, you know, what I really focus the book on and the social component is the litmus test for something that I would work on. And, and, you know, included in that could be something that's commercial or it could be something for a research lab. I, don't, I really don't, you know, specify one or the other, although, it was exceptionally exciting to work in the research side of this. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like I'm kind of digressing a little more here, but you're just getting my brain going um, with, with yeah, thoughts. I'm just it. wondering about, you know, like the International Space Station um, or something like that. You could have, I don't see why there's not more of a push. Maybe there is, and I don't know about it, but to use robotic tools to do some of the tasks, um, you know, like to go outside of the space station for something, you know, repairs or, or who knows what. And uh, I'm just curious if you've heard of anything like that or any comments about that wild thought I had. <laughs> yes. Well, I do know of a project that was around a social robot inside a space station, but I don't know how much of that is happening or is public knowledge. Hmm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. So let's talk about the book then. What uh, the book seems to be a, a warning. It seems to have a bit of a warning about um, our approach to it. But you tell me, tell me about the book. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a line in the book that maybe captures it. And, um, you know, I do a lot of, uh, public talks and talk a lot about robotics because I have such a passion for it. And the question that inevitably comes up is around this, this fear of our, our robot overlords and mm -hmm. being taken over by uh, the intelligence greater than ours. And, and that fear that's, that's, um, you know, propagated in, uh, popular media and so what i say in the book is like everybody has this fear but the real fear is of the supposedly smart things that are in our home that are not smart at all that will you know slowly drive us crazy because <laughs> they don't listen well and they don't perform the way we expect them to and they you know come in the door with the promise of of being easy and making our lives better and actually just make everything more complicated. Mm -hmm. And the premise of the book is really around talking to an audience of anyone who's involved with product creation, 
designers, engineers, marketing folks, etc. And encouraging a really focused and holistic process that puts the social interaction between the person and the product first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And it may seem like an obvious thing, but as you know, all of our robotic products or high-tech products, let's say, let's say sort of super generalize, um, we, we're just catching up in terms of technology being able to do things. So it's very tempting for product creators to want to have a one-upmanship with one another on features and that, that respond to what's possible. But this social approach really encourages a team going back and questioning why, why, why should we put this feature in here? What does this feature actually do to help the person using it? And the, kind of north star in all of this is you know just think about a person coming to this um interface knowing nothing more than they know about being a human being and and that was really a lot of the premise around the the social robotics labs that i was working with was you know we're developing machines computing machines that you can uh, operate so to speak, by simply being a person and walking in the room and using what you what tools you have, those tools being talking with an, another person. So talking with this robot, gesturing, mm-hmm. understanding gestures, you know, understanding cues. And, you know, a lot of the uh, ro- robots that I worked on in some of these labs, like at the lab at Georgia Tech, have um, this is what I call an exaggerated interface where we literally we had developed this one robot Simon that has eyeballs and the iris can move and there's a head that can move and gesture and there's arms and and hands and you can hand it an object there's pads in its hands and and a super sophisticated really um, intense and complex machine and uh, you know, so that's really the laboratory version of it. And Simon is is set up to study ways that we can teach a computing machine something. Mm-hmm. So you actually talk to the robot and you say, like, if it's, you can give it a, a color sorting exercise and it will take an object. It will use its camera vision to understand the, the color of the object. It will talk to the person and say, where do you want this object to go? And then it will parse a sentence and pull out the, the word that it, that it identifies as a color, let's say. But, uh, you know, that's kind of the most exaggerated where you're talking and gesturing and, and, um, and what I advocate for in the book is an extrapolation of that. So even though I'm talking about interacting with an object, like it's human, it's not necessarily literally human. So I talk a lot about abstraction. For example, you might have an object like an oven that needs to give you a warning mm-hmm. about something that's fully cooked. Or, and we do a lot through these modalities I talk about a lot, which is light, sound, and movement. Mm-hmm. And so 
you know, we could think about it. We're, we're in this phase of a, a love affair right now, I think, with conversational agents, mm-hmm. which totally get the love affair. Very cool and fun and fascinating and mm-hmm. totally matches up with our sci-fi fantasies of Hal and Kit <laughs> and, you know, countless others. But mm-hmm. um, it starts to become overly verbose and, and not necessary. And it's uh, there is a lot that is intuitive from shorthand gestures like that same oven if it had a flashing red light that we would understand flashing red light means it's alert or if it had if it you know i talk about having worked on a floor cleaning robot for the company needle robotics and working with a composer around the way that that robot communicates through sounds and even a sound that's a, a split second can tell you the difference between um, this is a good sound or a bad sound. This is a sound that I need to pay attention to, or this is a sound that's, you know, something in passing that I should know about. So that's really, you know, what I, what I talk about in the book. I'm speaking with Carla Diana, author of My Robot Gets Me. You can find more information about her work on her Instagram page at Carla Diana. If you like this episode of Technology and Space so far, please tap the like button and space dock the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or to get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com. If you want interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people, or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. What, um, in what circumstances would, would we want the tools to be human-like and in which situations would it be a negative to have the tool too human? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I, I, it's one that I talk a lot about. So I um, co-host a podcast. It's called oh. the RoboPsych Podcast mm-hmm. with a PhD psychologist whose name is Dr. Tom Guariello. Mm-hmm. And we talk so much about um, the humanoid robot and you know, why humanoid, why replicate the human form? And, um, you know, I, I actually think that there's, I mean, I, I really caution against replicating the human form. And I don't Mm. feel that that's, that I feel like that, that's rarely necessary. Mm. I think that, um, what's important is, the the social interaction mm-hmm. but not necessarily the replicated human form so for example in the field of social robotics there are some key and valuable interactions like one of them is to establish a um, gaze to communicate mm-hmm. gaze and by that i mean that you know when two people speak with one another uh, no matter who else is in the room, if they're sharing a gaze, there's an understanding that those two people are listening to one another. So um, 
that also becomes really important in terms of interacting with a product, especially if you think about maybe, you know, if you're interacting with a robot on a subway platform and there are, you know, thousands of people around and maybe even other robots, you know, how, how, how does that robot know? So that, you know, that, so that's one, that's one thing. And then another thing would be shared attention. So, um, Diligent Robotics, a company that I work with does a hospital robot. And so let's say there was a spill. Mm-hmm. or some obstruction and the robot wanted to communicate to one of the workers you know what was going on that it couldn't deal with mm-hmm. it might talk about the spill and then actually indicate that it's looking at the spill and the other and and understand that the person was also looking at the spill and give that mm-hmm. confirmation so you know there's there's gaze there and attention and those those are really some key ones and they show the reason for making a decision towards humanoidness let's say because uh if you need if you want gaze you need eyes or mm-hmm. some something you know so mm-hmm. for moxie the robot that whose design i worked on with diligent we have eyes but there are it's an LED matrix. So it's really, you know, a, a matrix of, of eight by four little dots. It's not like, like Simon, the first robot that we worked on together, like I said, that literally had an iris and eyeballs and, hmm. and eyelids. And, um, the Moxie just sort of has these, you know, these series of like 12 lights that can tell you if, if uh, if the eye is looking at something, but it mm-hmm. still reads as an as an eye. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, one of the things that was really important for us in terms of designing the shape and the movement of the robot is to have something that read like a head. Mm-hmm. And the head it's kind of a, a box on top of another box. You know, I mean, it's uh, I'm proud of my design. It's a <laughs> lovely box, rounded and you know, but, but I mean, it's really sort of, it's a box that can pivot up and down and can rotate around the, what would be perceived as the neck. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, designing in those characteristics were really important and they're important because they're humanish characteristics, even though I don't, I don't know at one po- at what point, it becomes humanoid or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I want to get into semantics around that, but, um, the human anatomy parts of the, the parts of the human anatomy that are important for communicating whatever that particular interface needs to communicate mm-hmm. are then important for the design. But, um, you know, it's rarely a literal, uh, rarely, or I don't know if ever, I mean, there, I know there's a whole uh, genre of robot creators, like, uh, I think it's Hiroshi Ishiguro who creates a, there's a whole genre of making literal clones of people. Uh, um, hmm. And I, I think that's, uh, I think that's fascinating more from a collective psychology point of view than from a, I mean, of course, a technology point, also Hanson Robotics. And uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Sophia. No. And there's a there's this robot that is a you know it's really literally skin with motors underneath. And you know, oh, I think I might have. You probably it. yeah. Sophia was in the press a lot last year, two years ago. I think I yeah. But uh, as you were describing Simon, I have to admit um, I was a little frightened by just <laughs> what 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 you described and and. 
have any tests been able to be done or allowed to be done about um, how toddlers or children interact with with any any robotic devices? Oh um, yeah, there's a lot of research around in that area, and uh, and there's a lot fascinating around it. That Tom and I, that's another topic Tom and I also really love to discuss is around kids and robots. Hmm. And there's a lab at, um, at the MIT Media Lab. There's a group at the MIT Media Lab that uh, is led by a woman named Dr. Cynthia Brazil hmm. that is the sociable robots lab. And they've been doing a lot of research around kids and robots and having robots as learning tools. Hmm. And there's... I mean, there's a lot of benefit around the social engagement as something that keeps a kid active and engaged. And again, getting back to this core premise of coming to the table without needing to know anything beyond, you know, I'm a kid, I know how to speak, I'm going to speak to this, I know how to gesture, I know how to I, I want to touch this part of it because it, it looks like it has an affordance to touch. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think, you know, and, and, and particularly kids don't necessarily have some of the baggage that we might have from our, our history of, of frightening sci-fi robots and that kind of thing. <laughs> right. And, mm-hmm. and they're also growing up. Like I have a, I have a five-year-old and he, he has grown up with, in an environment where adults speak to a cylinder on the bookshelf, you know, <laughs> like that's not odd to him, right? That's the something that, that he was born into. Mm-hmm. So I think there's all of that. I think you know, one of the things I talk a little bit about in the book, at least in the end, I try to, you know, kind of highlight because the book talks about everything that's so powerful and great around social robotics and design. But, uh, you know, I also want to make sure to highlight what the risks are and they're, you know, particularly around what I would call vulnerable populations. I think kids are one of those vulnerable populations to to realize that the the potential to persuade when you have this social interaction is so much greater than when that social interaction is not there. Hmm. Um, So. Yeah. So there's, there's a, there is a lot of ongoing research in that area, both in the pros and cons. So what about, um, the design of, of these devices for people who lack one or more senses or limbs? Are you able to comment on, on that approaches to that? Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the benefits in those circumstances would be that a, a robot could potentially um, use its modalities to um, fill in the blanks around the interaction. And what I mean by that is, you know, uh, I talked about these modalities of light, sound, and, and movement. And, um, you know, if somebody were hearing impaired, the robot could be programmed to exaggerate, let's say, the light and the movement part of it and um, for example moxie the hospital robot um, we've put a few different aspects of feedback in that 
robot. And one of them is this, uh, you know, for want of a better word, like a headband that's on the head, you know, that aesthetically it's a little, a little bit of a nod to a nurse's cap and, and this kind of thing. But the, what the, the function of it is that, um, at a, at a glance from a distance, someone can monitor what the robot status is. And if the robot has an error or is lost or running out of battery or there's something else that's going on, we wanted someone to be able to see it from, from down the hallway and then, you know, program it to have these messages that again are not literal messages that you read with words or hear with words, but that get communicated through this shorthand abstraction. And, um, you know, so I, I think regarding the you know visual impairment or hearing impairment those are things that a robot can really do well and you know in terms of something like a physical impairment um i think there's a lot of potential for robots to help out and help a person with their independence and you know even a lot of the robot arms that the labs i've been working with uh have worked with like we worked with one of the first robot arms was really one that was developed for people in wheelchairs and the arm would get attached to the wheelchair so that it would be something that a person could operate with a joystick while they were in the wheelchair so that it would allow them to reach things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to reach, pick something up off the floor, grab something from a shelf. Um, and so, you know, taking that one step further, I could even see an autonomous robot helping somebody in that situation. And it could, rather than being like literally on the chair, it could be, could be, I think, Actually, you're getting me going now because, you know, I think, I think it could, it could sit on the chair with you and then it could actually, you know, walk off or f- fly off like a drone and be, um, uh, you know, do some object manipulation on behalf of the person in the wheelchair and then come back and that kind of thing. So I imagine, um, at this point, you know, all these devices and robots, basically there's, there's an instruction manual. You have to kind of, understand how it works um what about the concept of getting to the point where where an instruction manual isn't needed does that make sense you know where yeah yeah um i mean that's really you know as a product designer that is really a goal that my peers and i talk about a lot you know Mm -hmm. it's a goal that we have with clients or on any projects to you know, it's a little considered a little bit of a failure if somebody has to to look something up. Although, you know, there are many cases when it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's really again a lot of the bottom line behind the book. My robot gets me is, you know, can we have something that's so intuitive that you don't that you can, instead of needing a keyboard or a series of button presses or some very specific command, can you have it so that it just understands you basically? And that's a tall order. Like, you know, I'm sitting here shrugging it off. Like it's, you know, like no big deal. I mean, it's an enormously tall order. Right. And I've been working alcohol. alongside these research labs for you know more than a decade, like I said, 
with this very goal in mind, like the first robot, the Simon robot, really that exercise of sorting colors was a really intense and enormous challenge. And there's, you know, and to be fair, there's a, there is a team of researchers who've worked on any of these projects that I've been part of and that specialize in artificial intelligence and the software development side of all of this. So, you know, the first robots that we worked on, you had to, like, Simon did this color sorting exercise. So you would have to uh, approach Simon and say things in a certain way, like have, you know, say, Simon, take this in order for the robot to know to grab an object. Mm -hmm. And then you had to say, where does this go? And then you had to say, it goes in the green bin. Mm -hmm. And then that the robot would parse that sentence and you know like more than a decade ago you'd have to have that script pretty well down like if you went off script <laughs> you know and and said i don't know simon what where do you think it goes maybe maybe it's green i don't know you know like, like that would be really challenging right yeah. um like, it goes in the green bin <laughs> but um you know, and I think that's the whole point of the social robotics work is to get to this moment now where where both between both the software side and the hardware side, because the hardware side also needs to communicate to you. Like, yes, you can speak to me. Yes, I've heard you. Yes, I'm working on this. Like all of those moments require feedback that can be understood. Um, you know, that's that's really a, a tall order, but a goal of the work. It feels like a lot of what you describe the issues and, and sort of solutions or, or things to consider, it feels like it's also, we've seen this with computers, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, when, when you have a computer running a program, it, it, they give you the little hourglass so you know it's working and you don't just get mad at the computer, right. you know. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's exactly those same, those very same design principles or, you know, there are, I mean, there, there are um, designers who even, even, there's been I, I I attend uh, an interaction design conference every year, as well as some other academic conferences that I don't quite attend every year. But you know, there's there's a huge field around uh, human computer interaction, mm -hmm. and there will be a you know entire sessions or or papers around even things like the progress bar on a website, right? Mm -hmm. The extent to which like what is that communicating to you, and how does how well does it communicate, and how well could it communicate while staying as simple as possible. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Carla Diana, author of My Robot Gets Me. You can find more information about her work on her Instagram page at Carla Diana. If you like this episode of Technology and Space so far, please tap the like button and space dock the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or to get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com. If you want interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. 
So um, are there other ma- uh, major themes or issues um, covered in the book that we haven't touched on yet? Um, you know, one of the major themes is just around talking about, I mean, I have a framework that really guides the book content and it is just a way of organizing thoughts because whenever you're involved in this, this kind of work and even, you know, there's a reader that I also envision who's not actively creating products, but is an enthusiast or, or even I mean, I actually personally believe that a literacy in understanding how your products work is something that everyone should have. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's very, but it's very complex, right? It's not, it's not, we're not talking about color theory where you're just looking at one thing. This involves a physical object that has computer programming that has, you know, color and texture and lights and, and motors and, you know, as well as being, parts of larger systems. So the framework to kind of organize a person's thoughts and or help a team organize its thoughts and communicate with one another effectively with this core core goal in mind uh, is it's kind of it's best described as an as an onion in the sense that there's one idea that then builds a layer on top of that idea while still encompassing the idea and it's and 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 grows out so it's a five layer concentric circles and i start with the idea of what i call presence Mm -hmm. or like what is the physical presence of the of this object with which you're interacting and you and i talked a lot about that is it humanoid is it not humanoid but you know there's there's so much nuance to that how and and i mean a lot of it has to do with how it relates to the the human body and i and i mean that always in like the broadest sense of the word like even a kiosk in an airport has a certain stature has a certain um thing that it represents has a certain like just it's being there and it's being able to confront you gives you some reassurance that you are getting the information you need at this really stressful moment so you know presence is everything about the physical the physical characteristics of the object and then expression is what I've talked with you a lot about, which is this, you know, light sound and movement and how is a message just like the, the light on the oven that needs to warn you, how is that message getting out to you? And then once we have the ability for an object to express itself, then what I talk about is interaction. So whereas expression is, is in a sense, the way that the, the object speaks to you and gives you messages. How does the object take in messages? And, you know, I liken that to um, our senses. I kind of do this thing where we like, can we think about it in these human terms and think about um, how it takes in visual information or what kind of sensor it might use or how it might um, analyze a microphone feed coming into it. And so we have, um, Presence, presence, expression, interaction. And then I talk about context. So that actually, so that's a really big, big, big theme in the book is this, um, you know, understanding. So just taking in the sensing information is, is only one part of it. Hmm. And so, you know, what does the, what I like to call the robot brain do with that sensing information? And one of the biggest challenges around robotics 
is this idea of context or understanding so much more than what that one sensor is and mm. putting everything together. Mm-hmm. And it may include, you know, it may even include like my phone understanding that I have an interview right now and, and reading my calendar and combining my calendar with something that I'm saying or, or, you know, what's happening, whatever's happening in the room or understanding that there's a party happening in the room. And, Mm -hmm. and if it's a light fixture, how should it respond? And, and that is a, a really sophisticated knowledge of human behavior and social interaction. And so that's a lot of what I talk about in the, the context part of it. And then the final ring is uh, ecosystems where, and what I mean by that are objects that need to behave with one another because uh, all of us have kind of experienced that everything is kind of beeping at us all at once. So, you know, having a product creator think about what a family of objects is and what it means for the objects all to be working in concert with another one another, which is one of the Mm. most, you know, um, overwhelming technical challenges, of course, because they're all on potentially different networks using different protocols and, and, you know, I mean, we could get into it, but, um, (laughs) there, there, you know, so that's, that's another one of the things that, um, I talk about in the book. One thing, uh, so when you mentioned about collection of information, it, it brought to mind, I, I interviewed Sean Garish um, a couple of years ago. I don't know if you know. Uh, he wrote a book on, uh, I think it was called How Smart Machines Think. And I asked. Oh, I should read that book. Um, I think he's with MIT or at least MIT published mm-hmm. the book. Um, and I asked, I, I think in that interview, I asked, do we have systems where they collect the machine, the, the objects collect more information that is then than is necessary for the task at hand you know are they compiling other information and processing it you know sort of thinking you know mm-hmm. i was trying to establish how, how close are we to having machines that think about things that aren't connected to their tasks at hand yeah yes exactly exactly so there's just so much more information and it's up to a designer to bring the human element or bring this social element to really understand. I mean, if you think about everything that you as a person might process when you walk into a room, let's say you walk into a party and you want to approach someone and talk to them, you're looking at their stance, you're thinking about who else they're talking to, you're thinking about what time of night it is, you're thinking about whatever's going on politically in the world, you know, I mean, it, it's it's our social decisions and how we behave is so um, intense and sophisticated and, you know, giving our products at least some relevant slice of that is what's going to help them to perform properly. And, you know, it may seem absurd, but like even something like a microphone could have this ability to know who in the room it should be listening to at what particular moment in time and gesturing towards that person or knowing when to turn itself off. I mean, we haven't even talked about privacy issues and all of the you know ethical considerations around that, but there's, you know, quite a lot to, that can go into making a great social interaction 
on behalf of a product. And um, you just anticipated my the next question I wanted to ask, um, which so, which was prompted when you mentioned ecosystems. Um, it feels like the presumption has been so far in the discussion that, um, or or what we've discussed is that the the object has one user. You know, what if it has competing users demanding its attention? You know, non cooperative users. Um, I don't know if we have any, if there's any devices that have to deal with that at the moment, but, um, I'm just curious about that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that that's a, a, um, a real scenario to think about. I mean, I could think about it. Uh, I mean, certainly there's a lot around multiple users, right? And some of these social interactions that I was mentioning, like around gaze and attention and um, your feedback, help a person know and help the robot know if it's interact, who it should be listening to, who it should be interacting with, when and and why, Um, you know, in terms of our more, um, home environment there's a there's a lot going on in the smart tv realm where you know a smart tv wants to be able to deliver preferences to a person and you know identify that person and have that person's history and respond appropriately but there are often multiple users using a, a you know a media device and so you know having decisions around who the product should be listening to and why. I mean, I, I, I could extrapolate that to like, even if we had a number of passengers inside, let's say an autonomous vehicle, mm-hmm. you know, who's, who's the driver then, right? And, or, you know, who's the host and who's the guest and all of those pretty intense social, um, social uh, relationships mm-hmm. become relevant. Hmm. Yeah, the, you, yeah. Using the term "host" and "guest" is an interesting one. Is that is that sort of a standard, you know, set of terms used in in your field, or? You know, there's a there's a um, there are these famous designers, Charles and Ray Eames. If you've ever heard the term Eames chair, <laughs> um, they did a lot of uh, really foundational work in um, American modernism, and. They talked about this philosophy. So I don't know how widespread it is, but in certain design circles, there is this famous quote around treating your, the person for whom you are designing, um, like a guest where your design activity is the host for them and thinking about that host guest relationship. So in other words, um, a great host and it's something I talk about in the book as well. A great host doesn't necessarily just give you things, but also gives you the ability to serve yourself. Like a great host says, you know, here's, here's a cocktail. If you're thirsty there, you know, you, you can also help yourself to more of this cocktail or a glass of water. And then, you know, and then that person's not waiting for some, like they're enabled to help themselves, but they've actually been treated like a, a guest they've been their needs have been thought about ahead i guess the point is their needs have been thought about ahead of time mm-hmm. hmm. so um how much of the book uh is is basically your understanding and your experience of what you've researched and how much did you have to do additional research for um to write parts of the book 
You know, that is a super great question. Most of it is my work and the research I've had to do for my work in my years of being a product designer. Mm -hmm. And so I draw on a lot of either projects that I've worked on or things that I look at for inspiration and then, you know, delve into more deeply. But there are a number of interviews that I do that are um, distilled into these interview summaries in the book. And those really go so much deeper beyond what I know. And we're also really lovely for me as somebody who's passionate about this. So for example, one of the interviews is with a fellow named Rocky Jacob, who was a head of design for um, Nest, which was acquired by Google. And they were, he was talking about the design of an outdoor security camera and um, some of the uh, nuances around his decisions around what the form of the camera should look like in order for people to feel like it's not necessarily a security camera, but an, but a camera that they can use for many different reasons um, and how the form would actually be the thing that would dictate that or that would help instill that emotion. I also got an interview with a fellow named Jonathan Foster, who was one of the um, who was the lead content developer for Microsoft's Cortana conversational agent. And he comes from a background in screenwriting. And so he talked a lot about a team of writers and the kinds of decisions that they have to make in order to anticipate the conversations that might take place between the agent and the person. And so that also, you know, so the things like that, that, that I might have had some sense of, but never, never really actually talked to the person firsthand, um, were things that I, I did as additional research. And on top of that, I had uh, a lot of the project was a collaboration with a researcher who was at the Stanford Center for Design Research for a while and then moved to Cornell Tech. And her name is Dr. Wendy Jew. And she's, she's for anybody who's interested in this area of human computer interaction, specifically uh, around the social interaction with an object, she's got a really wonderful team over there at Cornell Tech and she works a lot with all of these these issues and and does a lot of really deep research that's academic research that is you know whereas my research is design research for my design projects which is specifically to help make design decisions her research is academic research that goes much deeper and asks questions that may not pertain directly to a product that's being developed today but kind of much more open questions i'm speaking with carla diana author of my robot gets me you can find more information about her work on her instagram page at carla diana how much does um how much is designed um, affected by sort of, um, say, gender or cultural upbringing or, or any any myriad number of things uh, or ways in which people um, sort of behave according to how they're, you know, d- d- different ways that they behave? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. There's a it's enormously affected mm-hmm. by 
all of that, you know, and it's something that we think about as designers, but it's a really tough thing to really implement because you can't know everybody's experience. But um, it is, you know, it's certainly something that we want to pay attention to, um, you know, even something like color. I talk about using light, sound, emotion, and one of the parts of, of light specifically, now that we have ubiquitous LEDs, uh, and LEDs have the potential to, you know, a, a full spectrum LED can give you any color. So, and we, I talk about this language and these messages, but uh, if you think about something like the color red, which in our culture in the U.S. it typically is, you know, don't go bad caution but you know let's say in some other cultures like chinese culture red is a color you know it may also be around warning but it's also a color of celebration in a way that we wouldn't have an association there so you know understanding where predominantly your product is going to be used is is super important and also you know i think ethically as designers we really think about not perpetuating mm-hmm. uh, behaviors that we don't want to continue. So there's there's a book that is decades old at this point that uh, was, was very popular in design circles that's called As Long As It's Pink. And I'm blanking on the author. But that book really talks about, at the time, this proclivity to code objects, so to speak. And I'm using code there in a really loose sense by just saying whatever material it is. So, you know, by having a, a, a hammer that's created for women that has a pink handle, you're perpetuating this idea that the, that, that, you know, like just pink is this loaded color. It's like, mm-hmm. It's a color that's used for babies. It's a color that implies, you know, softness and and frailty, perhaps. Right. So, and and I'm talking. I'm just talking about color, but that gets uh, extrapolated to things like textures. You know, there's a big, very big difference in texture between. Like sometimes I look at things like sporting equipment or, you know, rollerblades, like, you know, and they might have these or, you know, tools are a really great example too. Like there are textures that communicate, um, you know, aggressive or, or rugged or, and colors that communicate rugged as opposed to delicate and, you know, not pandering to an audience like the pink hammer handle is a pandering to a female audience, whereas there are so many other ways to approach it. So mm-hmm. yeah, there are a lot of nuances around all of that. So um, when while putting this book together, um, what did you come across that most surprised you? Oh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. You know, there's, there's stuff that I get at at the end. There's a chapter around intelligence and you know intelligence not being like we think of intelligence in terms of of just sort of raw information but intelligence is really this softer skill around understanding context and emotion and state of mind and that kind of thing and um in doing that chapter 
I learned about some companies that do what is called effective computing and effective computing is a field that's focused around understanding human emotion, Hmm. understanding and communicating human emotion. So there's a company that's well known for this that grew out of the MIT media lab. That's called Affectiva. There's another one that's called Emotient. There's another one that's called Iris and that's spelled E Y E R I S. And those companies are taking in everything from microphone inputs and camera vision, as well as potentially other, there could be other sensors like galvanic skin response or, or depending on what, what the device is or what the particular area of research is. And uh, thinking about how a robotic object could take in information and then process it to the extent that it understands emotion and then adjust its behavior back hmm. to respond to that is a really fascinating, daunting, and new area for in terms of my research around product design. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, this question might seem w- w- very open-ended, but so what, what question... What issue would you most like to sort of uh, figure out or what's your pressing, you know, technological issue? What would you like to see addressed? What do you mean by technological issue? Do you mean specifically around the the tools that are being used for this kind of thing or? Yeah, I mean, we could talk about the tools. Um, I I guess what I'm looking for is what what achievable um, issue what issue that hasn't been solved yet but is close to being solved would you what breakthrough are you looking most forward to that you see you know the the breakthrough yeah that's a great question the breakthrough that i'm looking forward to has to do with privacy and mm. I think, and it's, you know, it's interesting because to me as a, as a designer, I feel like, well, you know, there are, um, there are folks who specialize in software encryptions and that's, you know, that's not my field or expertise in any which way or form, but it is, it is such an important ethical issue that it's one that I can't ignore mm-hmm. as a designer and, and it, it, you know, the ways that it's starting to come up is around this question of how do we design transparency? So in other words, if I walk into the room and there's an Amazon Echo and I didn't know that this person had an Amazon Echo, that Echo is going to start, is going to have microphones, right? Like eight microphones spaced out radially and that thing to be able to pick up sounds anywhere in the room and it's going to be listening it's listening for the wake word right and you know how how do i know that that thing is listening and how do i make a decision about what i do or do not want to talk about what i do or do not feel comfortable 
you know, talking about and and I, I mean, and that's just a microphone, right? Because like one of the things I talk about in the book is that the one of the best sensors that we have now is what I call the everything sensor, which is a camera. I mean, you put a camera in something and a lot of the robots that I work on have, um, you know, they might have multiple cameras in them. They can. Right. And so and and we know now, like almost any environment we walk into has has some camera and it's super exciting what the potential of what a camera with things that are actually invisible to us that a, that a number of, that a series of camera feeds can read and then um, analyze for us. But, you know, if I again walk into somebody's private home or if I'm in a hospital room or if I'm in a hotel room, you know, don't I deserve to know that there's a camera and to, and to understand the camera, if the camera is currently recording, if the camera is um, just seeing me, but not recording, if the camera is recording and storing that information locally on the device or if that camera is recording and storing that information as part of a larger database that could possibly be vulnerable and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mean, you can see how difficult a, a problem that is. And it's, it's, and I want to kind of say again, like that's a security specialist problem, but to me as a designer, if there are systems in place that I could use and say, like, you know, yes, let's develop a system so that somebody knows the microphone's on, the microphone's off, the microphone's storing in front of the microphones in this kind of intuitive, nuanced way that I talk about, mm-hmm. that would be that would be something that would be super valuable and something I care about and think about a lot. And, you know, for example, I have a, a friend who's a researcher with Google right now and he specializes in gesture and he, I had him come and do a workshop with my students here at Cranbrook Mm -hmm. around gesture recognition and machine learning and we did all of that with camera vision and he did it remotely because we're in the middle of pandemic and we use the the cameras that are on our laptops and it was exciting and wonderful like so exciting the potential and what he was able to teach us in just a couple of days about about being able to train an object to understand gesture but one of the things that he's been working on that Google's working on is something called project solely that it that uses radar as opposed to the camera to understand hmm. the shape of a thing that's in front of it mm-hmm. and so technological breakthroughs like that are things that I'm really interested in as a designer okay okay what um did you have any difficulties getting this book finished or published or is that pretty smooth Wow, that's the question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I asked that for other academics who are interested in, you know, publishing their own stuff. Yeah. You know, um, writing a book is, everyone knows it's hard, but, you know, you think like, no, I've got a lot to say. I'm going to just write it. And I, and I was doing a lot of, I do a lot of writing. I do a lot, but, you know, I, I like to write. Like I write 
I've written, I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times. It was a hugely satisfying experience and popular science has approached me to do a piece, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, yeah, I can write. But the, um, it took many, it took much longer than I thought it would. And by that, I'm talking about a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Um, I had been teaching a series of courses that I created that were around designing smart objects because those courses didn't exist anywhere that I was teaching at, you know, University of Pennsylvania or School of Visual Arts, Mm -hmm. Parsons School of Design at the new school. Um, And I had developed these lectures and was super comfortable and had a ton of case studies. And I thought, oh, I can... I could just transcribe these lectures and like, that'll be my book, you know? And and then that was really a facile attitude (laughs) about it all. Um, because it, 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 it was not the same as that. Um, and also working with, um, Wendy, you know, for a while we were going to co-author the book together and, I valued this partnership so much and I know that she did as well because we brought different perspectives. Like I brought a real depth of experience from my work in industry and she brought really this kind of depth of insight into a lot of the more academic research that she was doing. But in her, in, you know, once you go deeper, then it, it just explodes the content. Right. So then I went from everything being kind of thin to then we had all these kind of conversations around the content and ultimately decided that a co-authorship didn't, didn't make sense anymore for this particular project because it was so both of our, both of our streams were so, were going so deeply into it. But I think that, yeah, it's, um, I, everyone I know who's, who's done a book has just had to just, it takes time and focus and, you know, had to kind of hole away in a room. So last summer for me, once I feel com- felt comfortable enough with a nanny that I could hire mm-hmm. and have some childcare, it was really a lot of hours of just really f- focus and, uh, you know, wrapping it up is is one of the harder things because it becomes so big. Once you start writing it, it just becomes so big, and that and that's when um, Jeff Kehoe, my my editor at Harvard Business Review, also really became a big help because when it starts to be so enormous that you can't see the you can't see either the forest or the trees anymore. <laughs> That's where the editor really is becomes the biggest help. And was Har- Harvard on board at the beginning? Was it? Uh... Yeah, yeah, they were on board from uh, from a uh, proposal stages. Okay. So that was um, yeah, they've been a great partner. Okay, are you writing anything currently? Another book? Not, not right. 
now, you know, I don't know. I think about it. The The book I wrote before, this is actually a children's book. I wrote a children's book called Leo the Maker Prince, hmm. Journeys in 3D Printing. That is a, it's a story about, uh, and it was also based on, on some pretty intense research around the retail 3D printing market, but hmm. it's a, a kid's book. It's a story about a robot and a young woman and their friendship and in in telling that story reveals the anatomy of the robot and, and the relationship, but you know, how somebody would work with a 3d printer and why they would work with a 3d printer. Um, so I don't know, part of me thought, Oh, maybe I could alternate between a, a lighter book and a heavy book. Not that that project was light by any means, because there's a lot of, like I designed a bunch of objects that are in the book and they're yeah. illustrated and all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, no, you know, and, and right now I think it's exciting to do things like like your podcast and talk about some of the ideas in the book. So I'm I'm looking to do some op eds that that build on that some more short shorter form pieces that build on the content that's in my robot gets me. Okay. So you did mention some of what the goals with this book. Um ultimately what would you what would you like the reader to take away from this book? I would like them to take away the importance of taking a deep breath at the beginning of a project to really study what all the relationships are. And, you know, one of the methods, one of the methods that I talk about is really acting out the process. So, you know, I'd like people to take away because it's so tempting to want to go from point A to point B and, and say, you know, we're, we're going to design this microphone and it's going to be the best microphone ever. And it's going to have this, this, and this features. And in order to really understand how it's going to be the best microphone ever, you need to understand the social experience of the microphone and in order to do that you need to take the time to do the exercises and the exercises include um like i'll do things with my clients where we literally make a mock-up of whatever environment it is so if it was for the hospital robot can we mock up the pharmacist's office even if it's just a sh shelves and we have cardboard boxes that represent the medication and have somebody act the part of the robot and and literally go through that exercise of at programming the robot to pick up the medication to deliver it to someone because that exercise really reveals some of the more um, detailed aspects of the interaction that if you were just writing everything down on a piece of paper or draw, drawing it out or mm -hmm. coding it, you wouldn't necessarily give importance to. Mm -hmm. I, I, I smiled at the thought of whoever played the robot being, <laughs> being uh, difficult on purpose, let's say. Oh, just, oh. Just, just... yeah. I thought you were going to say the opposite. I, I was going to tell you, like, I always know who the real sport in the room is mm -hmm. by the person who's willing to play the robot. That, that's yeah, ex Exactly. Um, <laughs> the first, yeah, um, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, so where can people find you online? Uh, do you have social media or website? I do. I do. I'm probably most active on Instagram and I'm mm. just Carla Diana, C-A-R-L-A-D-I-A-N-A, -A -A, mm. um, on Instagram. And I repost the Instagram stuff on, on Twitter and, um, 
Facebook, but I, I, as a person who really loves the visual, I like Instagram. And then I, I, I always try to keep my website updated. It needs some revisions right now, but it's just CarlaDiana.com. I, I, I'm surprised that, uh, that you consider Instagram as your, your best social media, um, platform for the work you do. I, I wouldn't think it lends itself that, that well to science or, or design, but, but like you say, the visual part. Yeah. I just think there's a lot, there's a lot communicated in a one minute video that doesn't come across necessarily in Twitter. And though you're talking to me, cause I just wrote this book, really the passion of my work is around the, the object creation. Hmm. And so, you know, Instagram gets that across as well as the work of my students is, you know. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any parting thoughts or words? I don't. I think there was, was exciting news this morning about uh, the helicopter in Mars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that was pretty cool. Or that is cool. Yeah. And yeah. so I thought about your podcast when right when waking up and oh yeah and how much there is that i don't know about um space technology and everything the intersection of robotics and space technology oh yeah yeah it's um yeah but but yeah you have to be aware that you don't you don't veer too much into sci-fi and you kind of stay focused on the the here and now yeah. <laughs> when you have space and robotics yeah. um all right well uh thank you very much for speaking with me oh thanks for having me it was a pleasure it was. Thank you. In the next episode, I speak with Cade Metz, who's written about the individuals who brought artificial intelligence to Google, Facebook, and other companies. Space Doc, the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Technology and Space. If you want more interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com. And follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and this podcast, Technology and Space. If you want interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast Full Contact Nerd Interviews. Thank you for listening. And I hope to see you again soon.